Welcome back, everybody, to the second of the August Conte Memorial Lectures in 2013. There are only very few things in life, I think, where the sequel is as good as the original version, but I think tonight promises to be one of these things. We heard about the Lockean defense of the jurisdictional aspect of territorial rights last night, and I think tonight we'll get a Lockean defense on property rights over resources. Thank you, John Simmons. Well, thanks again to the department for inviting me, to Tom for helping me with uh, all of these arrangements, and to Gabriel for ably hosting and chairing. Um, and thank you all for coming, especially those of you who are bravely enduring a second talk. Um, I will begin with my second and final desperate mention of Auguste Comte. Uh, Auguste Comte died, as you probably suspected. Uh, he died in 1857. Here comes the transition. And actually, he's buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery, where you can visit his grave. I've visited his grave. Probably some of you have, uh, too. In the same year that Comte died, a fellow Frenchman also living in Paris was married and hesitantly began uh, what would be a long and very successful literary career. And a few years later, that writer, uh, Jules Verne, the father of science fiction, published his novel Voyage au Centre de la Terre, excuse my French, uh, the first of a remarkable series of books that he called The Extraordinary Voyages. It was a series that included, as you probably know, other journeys around the world in 80 days and to the bottom of the sea and to the moon and so on. In Verne's Center of the Earth story, as you probably know, a German professor, uh, his nephew, and their guide descend to the Earth's center through the crater of a volcano in Iceland, encountering on their way various marvels, including prehistoric plants and animals, uh, and they're eventually safely delivered back to the surface of the earth courtesy of the eruption of a different volcano, uh, this one in southern Italy. Um, despite, or perhaps because of its preposterous plot, uh, the English translation of uh, this Jules Verne novel was one of my favorites as a child. It has, alas, aged poorly in its science uh, compared to Verne's other science fiction novels. Until early in the 20th century, we knew very little about the interior of the Earth. Uh, before then, almost everyone, including Verne, assumed that the Earth had a roughly uniform, rocky structure throughout, which could, in principle, permit humans to reach its center. We now know, of course, that the Earth's solid crust is a relatively thin shell, 20-some uh, miles in depth at its thickest and that the interior 95% of the Earth is of a very different and far less hospitable character. Uh, the Earth's mantle layer is fluffy or gooey or molten, depending on who you listen to, uh, very hot and in motion slowly around the core. The inner and outer cores are a moving layer of molten metal surrounding a relatively solid metal sphere with temperatures exceeding those on the surface of the sun and pressure is approaching 50 million pounds per square inch. Uh, needless to say, humans cannot now and probably will not ever be able to visit the Earth's center. 
Uh, to this date, no hole made or explored by humans has penetrated through even a third of the Earth's crust. Uh, the deepest, deepest mining operations in the world in a, one of the South African gold mines take place less than two and a half miles uh, beneath the Earth's surface. There is a depth record for drilling that's slightly less than eight miles, but that's just drilling a hole. Um, these are scratches in the Earth's crust. There is, as you probably know, a much publicized project underway to drill through the Earth's crust to the mantle. Um, they're going to drill on the ocean floor where the crust is considerably thinner, which presents certain complications of its own. They have to design a special ship to do the drilling and so on. And the scientists involved appear to have a disturbingly modest understanding of the experiment's potential for unpleasant side effects when they actually succeed in doing this. Uh, in any event, Jules Verne's characters encountered many problems in their explorations of the Earth's interior, but one problem they decidedly did not encounter was any suggestion during or after their journey that in the process they had violated any individual's property rights or any state's sovereignty. They did, after all, travel through parts of the Earth. They gathered samples from the Earth. They ate and drank from the Earth, and they eventually blew up and reconfigured a substantial chunk of it that it never crosses our minds or the characters' minds that any of these activities are wrongful or illegal suggests that we think while reading what the characters think, namely that no one else has a prior claim of right over what Professor Lindenbrock and his companions are messing with. It is, however, as you undoubtedly know, a commonplace of Anglo-American property law that an owner of land has rights over all that lies beneath that land ad inferos to the inferno, descending in a rough cone with its point at the center of the earth, as well, of course, as rights over all that is above the land ascending to the heavens ad coelum. Similarly, international law operates on the presumption that individual nation states have territorial rights over all that lies in the rough cone that extends from the boundaries of their surface territories to the center of the earth. By these principles, of course, Jules Verne's characters were violating rights left and center. And at the conclusion of their descent, nearly 4,000 miles beneath the earth's surface, they were trespassing on the property of every landowner in the world and had unlawfully crossed the borders of every one of the earth's sovereign states. The legal principles that have these implications seem, of course, preposterous, perhaps even more preposterous than Bird's story. Contemporary landowners and nation states cannot now, and barring the development of some truly surprising technology, will probably never be able to reach, let alone use, the central portions of the earth for the same reason that Burns' adventurers couldn't have explored there. Worse, though, the legal center of the earth principles runs squarely into the fact that much of the earth's interior is fluid and in motion, so that different materials compose each rough cone at different times, despite these cones supposedly belonging to the same landowners and states at all times. Claims to property or territory deep beneath the Earth's surface thus more closely resemble claims to ownership or jurisdiction over the skies or the seas than they do claims to surface land. Of course, as we all know, 
states also make certain kinds of claims over the skies and seas, a point to which I'll return momentarily. Though it's often assumed to be quite an ancient principle, the center of the earth property principle is actually fairly of fairly recent origin. There were some statements of the principle as early as the mid-13th century, this statement in Accursius that looks like this, and there are some English common law uh, judgments that look something like this. Uh, but the principle wasn't really widely accepted until the middle of the 17th century. Uh, Samuel Pufendorf, the great German natural law theorist, stated in 1660 in his Elements of Universal Jurisprudence that the proper space, as he called it, associated with land ownership is a four-sided pyramid with its uh, point at the center of the earth extending through the four corners of the property and its base uh, indeterminate in the heavens. The most influential statement of that idea by far, though, and one that was clearly borrowed from Pufendorf, by the way, was William Blackstone's in his 1766 Commentaries on the Laws of England. Uh, prior to Blackstone, references to subsurface property rights in English law were almost, very almost always very restricted. They were focused only on the rights at issue in controversies over near-surface areas of economic activity like wells and pipes and mines or over mere extensions of, of surface objects like tree roots or building foundations. After Blackstone, though, lawyers and judges began to cite the center of the earth principle as though it were a revered principle of ancient Roman law. And it was through revolutionary America's reverence for Blackstone's commentaries of the center of the earth principle made its way into early American law where it has remained fir firmly ensconced ever since in American legal reasoning about property. A lot of people uh, have suggested that Blackstone's commentaries was the second most important and influential book after the Bible in colonial America. It was taken very, very seriously. It has broadly sort of Lockean overtones, so I, I enjoy reading Blackstone, but... Uh, the colonists were much taken by it. <clears throat> International law concerning state territory, of course, was more or less obliged to follow property law in this matter, also using the center of the earth principle to locate the territorial rights of the modern state. For a state can hardly allow that its citizens possess domestic property over which that state has no jurisdiction, over which it has no rights to enforce its laws, over which it has no rights of taxation or regulation. So the preposterous center of the earth principle in property law became as well a common feature of discussions of state territory in the international sphere. And this brings me, at last you might well say, to the question I want to explore today, namely the nature of and the possible justifications for the property-like claims that states make over things associated with or comprising their particular territories. I suggested in yesterday's lecture um, that modern states, in claiming legal jurisdiction over particular geographical areas of the Earth's surface, uh, also claim in the process authority over the persons located within those areas, different kinds of authority in different cases, but in addition to those kinds of jurisdictional rights that states claim, states also claim rights that more closely resemble the kinds of claims to land ownership made by individuals. These property-like rights 
include the right to control the borders of the territory in the same way that we think a landowner has the right to control the borders of his land, perhaps by fencing it or at least by excluding others from using or entering on it without his consent. And relative to states' borders, states also make property-like claims over the non-human physical stuff in, around, and comprising their areas, the things often referred to as natural resources. These kinds of property-like rights emanate from, but are not confined to, the surface shapes of states that we draw on maps and globes. As we've just seen, for instance, in addition to claiming rights to a bounded surface and to the things on it, the land and the surface water themselves, the timber and plants and animals and so on, they also claim rights over what lies beneath that surface, the rocks and dirt, the metals and minerals, the oil and gas and water. And, of course, states claim rights over more than just this, including what's above and around their surface, land spaces. States claimed air spaces legally speaking, are complicated and very non-uniform. They generally range in extent from 20 miles to 100 miles above the state's surface claims. Uh, Since it makes little sense to claim as property the fluid and fast-flowing air itself, states' claims in this area are normally understood as restricted to prohibiting activities that would compromise either national defense or domestic traffic coordination within the airspace. So, for instance, flyovers by military aircraft are, or spy planes are generally prohibited. Innocent flyovers under domestic supervision are permitted, as are the activities of spy satellites that uh, merely view the surface through the controlled airspace. Claims over moving water made by contemporary states include, for similar reasons of defense and coordination and with similar restrictions, both the state's interior waters, that is water that's landward of the low water seaside baseline for the state, and its exterior territorial waters, if any. Most states currently claim 12 nautical miles beyond the low water baseline as their territorial waters. There's a tiny handful of states that still adheres to the old three-mile cannon shot rule, as it used to be called, a much more clearly defensively motivated claim. It was designed initially to permit states to exclude warships from uh, the surrounding waters that were in within cannon range of their coastlines. International accords now, however, recognize as well states' claims to large exclusive economic zones, as they're called, ranging out to 200 nautical miles from the state's sea baseline, often including the relevant continental shelves. These EEZs, as they're referred to, give states control over seabed resources and marine economic activities in that area. And here, of course, states' territorial claims appear to be driven not by any special concerns about national defense or traffic control, but simply by concerns to maximize national control of possible sources of wealth. Those, then, are the kinds of property-like rights that modern states claim that I want to talk about, should we regard these claims of right as well-grounded or justified. One might think that in a world of increasing population and gradually increasing amounts of dry land, states' claims to exclusive control over potential living space on the Earth's surface may look a little self-serving. And that model of states' rights, that is, of states having exclusive rights over the natural resources on or under their lands, 
is one that's implicated in some of today's worst human tragedies. In the grips of this model, local political factions in poorer nations competing to fully exploit what they take to be their own territory's resource rights have produced extensive oppression, disorder, and bloodshed. Meanwhile, wealthy nations vying to secure reliable access to valued resources in poor countries have created or propped up willing and often quite brutal regimes, largely because doing so was necessary to create the appearance of dealing for resources with the representatives of a sovereign territorial state, that is, a state that had exclusive rights over those resources. Your country and mine and our corporate citizens are far from alone in this practice. How shall we approach the issue of trying to justify states' property-like territorial claims to non-human stuff in the world, as opposed to their more jurisdictional claims over persons? I want to start by distinguishing what I'll call the extended territorial claims that states make to the air above, the subsurface below, and the sea around their land from what we can call their core territorial claims to their bounded portion of surface land. And I'll consider these claims in that order, since it seems clear to me at least that most of the extended territorial claims are precisely that, that is, only a kind of extension of the more basic core territorial claims by states that we mostly take for granted. If we think of these extended claims as property-like claims in their own rights, they will inevitably appear confused or ill-motivated, and that's simply because property claims over things like air or water or much of the Earth's interior immediately raise the question, how can a person or a nation own a geographically fixed cone or pyramid-shaped piece of something when that something is a fluid in constant circulation so that the composition of the cone or pyramid changes from moment to moment. There are, interestingly, historical debates about this topic, though they are confined almost entirely to debates about the sea. Uh, when theorists first began to think about the territorial rights of the modern state and about the property rights of modern citizens, the center of the earth and up to the heaven principles were still in their infancy, and in any event, nobody's going to worry very much about the fluidity of the heavens above or the subterranean world below, so long as those domains remain so inaccessible to us. Indeed, it wasn't really until the 20th century when manned flight became a serious social issue, and we learned a little about the Earth's interior, that claims over unbounded fluid domains of that sort began to seem troubling. But there were, in fact, from the very start of our thinking about the territorial rights of modern states, politically charged and quite bitter theoretical debates about the possible ownership of the sea. The first and most famous of these, again, involved Samuel Pufendorf, uh, Pufendorf's famous predecessor, Hugo Grotius, the other great natural law theory, philosopher and the father of the theory of international law, had argued in 1609 that the sea having no fixed portions or natural limits, as he put it, is incapable of appropriation and so must remain in common for all to use freely. You may have seen reference at least to the work called The Free Sea, which was the first part of a later work that was published earlier. Uh, the English jurist and philosopher John Selden, uh, often associated with Hobbes in terms of the character of his theory, argued in 1635 
that the sea is as capable of being owned as the land. On that one occasion, agreeing with his king, who spent most of his time putting Selden in the tower, but on that occasion he was agreeing with Charles I, who had loudly condemned the activities of Portuguese and Dutch uh, fishermen poaching in English coastal waters. Pufendorf, again in his elements of universal jurisprudence, agreed with Selden against Grotius, arguing that if the sea can be used, as it plainly can be, and as God plainly intended it to be since he filled it with tasty fish and gave us dominion over them, uh, if it can be used, then others may be excluded from competitive use of portions of the sea, just as others may be legitimately excluded by an owner from competitive use of his land, of his portion of the earth. These exclusions, if they're systematic and legitimate, Bovendorf argued, simply add up to rights of ownership. There is, I think, something right about both sides in this debate. There would be something deeply odd about claiming a property right or a property-like territorial right over a particular geographically located set of water molecules, say, or over a particular geographically located school of fish, if these things remained very likely to and perfectly free to immediately migrate to other locations, intermingling with uh, others of their kind that were unowned or that were owned by other persons or states. The absence in these cases of anything that looks like real possession of the thing the standard first requirement for ownership of a thing is what makes this idea odd, I think, and it's that, I think, that also explains the initial oddity of states claim territorial rights to the air above the sea around and the earth beneath their lands. But there's nothing at all odd, as Pufendorf stressed, about claiming the right to prohibit certain kinds of activities within a geographically fixed portion of a fluid domain particularly where the activities bear on human interests in some non-fluid domain. And those claims to exclude will look legitimate precisely to the extent that they're required for the success of activities that are themselves legitimate. So in that way, we can think of at least some of states' claims to control airspaces and territorial waters as simply extensions of states' presumably legitimate tasks like traffic control and border control and territorial defense of their core territories. Those tasks, though, notice, are primarily jurisdictional in nature or involve the defense of jurisdictional claims, making the extended territorial claims at issue also look more jurisdictional than property-like. I mean, if states are entitled to uh, control and coordinate domestic movement by those over whom they have jurisdiction by, say, imposing traffic schemes and enforcing safety provisions and uh, restricting vehicle types and things of that sort. And if some of that movement by the state's subject uh, takes place in the air above and the sea around the core land territories, then states look entitled as well to control airspaces and coastal waters for those purposes. Similarly, if states are entitled to defend their territories and police their borders, and if attacks or illegal crossings can come from air or sea, as they plainly can, then states look entitled to take reasonable means to prevent the air above and the sea around their lands from being used in those ways. But it is the right to govern the land that gives these extended rights over air and sea. Merely having the right to extend jurisdictional claims over the land to areas beyond the land still appears to fall far short of anything 
resembling ownership of the air above and the sea around one's territory. Um, the legitimacy of fencing, sorry, not the sport, which is plainly legitimate, the idea of building a fence. Fencing an area is often a good test for the presence of property-like rights over an area. Right? Private landowners, for instance, are normally entitled to fence their just holdings in order, say, to keep in pets and livestock and children um, or to keep out thieves or trespassers. You may not, to be sure, build your fence in a way that undermines your neighbor's permissible activities, uh, nor may you top your fence with poisonous vipers, say, but provided only that in fencing your land you do not unduly endanger others or the environment or diminish the value of others' holdings, fencing of land usually seems unobjectionable. And we seem prepared as well to treat states' core territorial claims to surface land and enclosed water in this property-like way, assuming that border fencing is at least not inherently illegitimate. The Great Wall is the most impressive and coolest historical example of a territorial border fence, uh, but many contemporary states have similar, though far less cool, barriers. Uh, the U.S. has a largely ineffective fence along some of its border with Mexico and is considering proposals, mostly Republican proposals, to build a lot more. Uh, Israel has more effective barriers along its borders with the West Bank and Gaza, as well as some slowly disintegrating barriers at its borders with Egypt. India has fences between its territory and those of Pakistan and Bangladesh. Iran has a border fence along its border with Pakistan. The two Koreas have long been separated by a very strong and tightly guarded set of border defenses and so on around the world. The standard objections to border fencing, to border barriers, seem to be of two sorts. One kind of complaint is that the border fences in, in question are just bad items of their kind. Right? In the U.S., for instance, there are a lot of worries about the barriers at the Mexican border that take the form of complaints that they unnecessarily endanger those who are attempting illegal entry right? in the way that we might object to your viper-topped fence as unnecessarily endangering would-be trespassers, or because the barriers uh, destroy animal habitats. That's a common complaint about the Mexican barriers. The second kind of complaint seems to be that the very task of border control that the barriers assist is itself an illegitimate task, either because enforcing border control is itself illegitimate, that all national borders ought in principle to be open, or because the specific borders in question are unjustly established borders. Right? The familiar objections to the Israeli border fences and the Indian border fences take that form, right? that they're defending unjustly established borders. But complaints about border fences almost never take the following form. The control of those very borders is a legitimate task, but fencing the borders as a way of securing them would be illegitimate. That such complaints are so uncommon suggests to me, at least, that we're mostly comfortable with the idea that legitimate states have property-like claims to their core land territories. What, though, would we say about treating the air above and the sea around as owned by states in this way? Suppose a state could build a massive fence or wall from the ocean floor to well above the sea's surface, enclosing all of its coastal waters and its claimed exclusive economic zones. 
or suppose that it could build a massive dome that entirely enclosed its claimed airspace, reaching many miles above the Earth's surface. If intuition can manage to get past the science fiction character of these suppositions, my suspicion is that most will find such imagined enclosures by states morally dubious, at least largely because of of the ways in which they would exclude many innocent, non-threatening activities in the relevant spaces. Denying a passenger plane an innocent flyover or a yacht an innocent sail-through has more the look of greedy grasping for control of the world than it does the look of legitimate pursuit of morally unblemished state goals. It would, of course, be unacceptable for Mexico and Canada to build a really, really long suspension bridge over the U.S. linking Mexico City to Montreal for the same reason that it would be unacceptable for your two neighbors to build a bridge joining their houses that runs directly above your house and yard. But forcing innocent flights from Mexico City to Montreal to fly around or to fly high enough to get above all the areas of air and sea over which the U.S. claims control looks at least equally unacceptable. And without massive walls enclosing portions of the ocean or domes enclosing a state's airspace, which is, of course, our condition for the foreseeable future, there is a further obvious concern about states claiming ownership of sea or air, a concern that returns us to the issue of their fluid characters. Sometimes owners claim, uh, and we think claim permissibly, the right to damage or to pollute what they own if doing so somehow advances their ends. They are, however, typically forbidden to do so or at least required to uh, pay damages ex ante if their pollutants are allowed to escape and to adversely affect the property of others. States often display a disturbing tendency to treat local pollution as a local problem, just as a landowner might say, I can do what I want with my property. But because of their patterns of movement, the air and sea surrounding one state can only very rarely be damaged or polluted without its eventually causing problems for other states. The same is true of pollutants that can migrate underground across national borders. Encouraging states to think of their claims over air and sea as less property-like and more as mere extensions of their core jurisdictional rights might conceivably encourage in them as well a greater sensitivity to the ways in which local polluting is often not a local problem. If all that's true, of course, it suggests that states' extended territorial claims, its claims over what lies around its core land spaces, can probably not be defended if they're characterized as anything like claims of ownership or property. And that fact alone casts into serious doubt many specific aspects of the rights that states actually claim over sea and air and subsurface. In particular, all of those aspects of those claims that can't be justified as extensions of states' jurisdictional and defensive tasks State claims over everything on or beneath the ocean floor, for instance, extending hundreds of miles from the state's coastline, plainly cannot be justified as simple extensions of jurisdictional requirements. Further, and here we return to the theme with which I began, there's plainly no need for states to coordinate traffic, to monitor borders, or to establish territorial defenses in the deep interior of the earth beneath their territories. Even at the U.S.-Mexico border where um, there are so many drug traffickers' tunnels that they constantly 
colliding and caving one another in, uh, or at, say, the border between Egypt and Gaza, where the, drug, where the smugglers dig tunnels faster than the Egyptians can flood the old ones. Um, even there, it's only in the very near subsurface of the territory that you need to monitor and control uh, the subsurface for jurisdictional and defensive reasons. So it's only in the very top layers of the Earth's crust that states' property-like claims look even potentially defensible using this kind of rationale. States' claims over the vast majority of those rough cones or pyramids extending to the center of the Earth again have more the look of greedy grasping, at least to this point. In order to justify states' claims over the deep Earth beneath or the ocean floor surrounding their core territories, it would appear that we're obliged to argue that each state is somehow entitled to reserve for itself all of the known and unknown natural resources that merely happen to lie closer to their surface land than to the surface land of any other state. But it's very hard for me to see how we could go about arguing for such an entitlement, especially in light of the extraordinarily unequal and historically stained distribution of states' land territories. It might initially seem, I suppose, that states' claims over their subsurface cones and over all the resources in them might be legitimated by the fact that outsiders can't gain access to these areas without disrupting surface activities above them, thus interfering with the lives of the citizens who live on the surface or with the state's performance of its jurisdictional tasks. But that, of course, would be a mistake Non-vertical wells and mines, which are now perfectly familiar, can enter subsurface areas and harvest many kinds of resources without disturbing the surface areas directly above them. And in any event, many of the resources beneath their territories in which states are most interested, such as groundwater and natural gas and oil, often exist in reservoirs that extend across subterranean national borders and can be harvested from multiple surface territories. These are sometimes referred to as common pool resources. Given the doubts that I've been raising about treating states' extended territorial rights as property-like rights, doubts which I at least find it very difficult to resist with plausible argument, I want to turn now to the far less obviously contestable cases of the property-like claims that states make, namely states' core claims to the resources located on or immediately beneath their claimed land. I mean, we tend, of course, to think of natural resources as comprising things like metals and oil and water and arable land and timber, but equally important as territorial resources are things like coastlines, navigable interior waterways, defensible boundaries, interior terrain that's suitable for domestic infrastructure, and so on. And all of these kinds of resources are distributed in dramatically unequal fashion across the various nations in the world. Even were states unequal allotments of such natural resources simply a matter of good or bad fortune in a morally impeccable history of the world, there's a well-known argument against allowing this distribution of resources to simply stand as is, and all of the philosophers and political theorists here will know this argument. The argument attempts to extend in a cosmopolitan direction John Rawls' famous claims about the moral arbitrariness of the distribu distribution of personal assets in what he called the natural lottery. Right? The Rawlsian argument is roughly this, that when we drop into the world at birth, complete with our inherited genetic makeups and our social starting points, 
these initial endowments are plainly just a matter of good or bad luck. The distinctions between us in these matters are, as he put it, arbitrary from the moral point of view, in the sense that they are not to the credit or discredit of those who inherit them. Social institutions that treat any of these differences between persons as if they do reflect the merits or demerits of persons, allowing people's life prospects to be importantly determined by these differences, are unjust in the same way that institutions that discriminate on the basis of differences in skin color or gender are unjust. Persons deserve, Rawls argued, to neither profit nor suffer from such arbitrary differences between them, and society should not institutionally reinforce these unearned differences. I mean, the result of a society's observing these kinds of constraints, of course, would be a far more equal distribution of social goods than we see at present. But we can, in this same way, treat nation-states ample or scanty resource endowments as important but morally arbitrary and undeserved influence on their residents' life prospects. From such a theoretical starting point, it's natural to suppose that nations, not deserving their particular good or bad resource endowments, have no special claims over them and are morally required to treat all persons in the world as equally entitled to access to all of the world's natural resources or to the value of these resources. So rather than exclusive control by sovereign states over territorial resources, this kind of argument suggests a duty on states or peoples of global sharing of resources, perhaps through something like redistributive taxation or other effective means. So some political philosophers, and most prominently Tom Poga, have argued in roughly this fashion for what he calls a global resources dividend and a tax to be paid by nations on the natural resources that they use or sell with the resulting funds to be redistributed in the interest of securing basic rights in developing countries, countries that have been victimized uh, by uh, resource scams of various kinds. Uh, similarly, left libertarians, most prominently Hillel Steiner, have argued for related conclusions, that is, that those who use more than a fair share of the Earth's land or resources have to pay for this use to those who get less, but they've argued from rather different premises. Left libertarians typically begin by affirming natural rights of self-ownership, but denying any private rights to the Earth and its resources. The Earth is viewed as either naturally unowned or naturally owned in common, with no individual entitled to appropriate more of it than any other. Individuals may legitimately use or control on this line of argument no more than an equal share. And collections of individuals, like political societies, can legitimately establish exclusive control over no more than the sums of the legitimate shares of their members. It follows, of course, from that argument as well, that the extent of states' justified resource rights cannot be any simple function of the resources that happen to lie on, under, or around their claimed territories. And that, of course, is only the start of the problems that we face in trying to justify the core resource rights that states claim. The unequal distribution of resources between states is hardly just a function of good or bad luck of the various nations having been plunked down where they currently are in the way that individual persons are plunked down into their bodies and their social starting places. I mean, much of the world's impressively bloody history has been a product of nations seeking to inquire and control 
such resources by force of arms. So arbitrariness has been compounded by injustice. In the colonial histories of the great European powers, we're regularly driven by the desire to control and exploit the natural resources that were arbitrarily faced, placed far away from their core territorial claims, often with quite grim consequences for the native inhabitants. Similarly, most of the worst episodes in the United States expansionist period were motivated by the ambition to control North American resources, including not just things like gold and silver, but fur-bearing animals, timber, arable land, navigable waterways, and finally Pacific harbors. And it continues to be routine in the contemporary world for the great powers to exploit the resources of poor nations through a kind of monopoly that wealthy nations possess over the expertise and technology necessary to harvest these resources. Already affluent nations then reap unconscionably large shares of the profits from such joint enterprises, often sharing those profits with corrupt and autocratic regimes. In the face of such concerns, how can anything like states' core claims to resources be defended? The natural place to turn for counterarguments, of course, is to the standard philosophical approaches to justifying states' territorial rights. These will inevitably have implications for states' claims to property-like rights over local natural resources. In yesterday's lecture, I talked at some length about what I called the voluntarist and functionalist and nationalist theories of states' territorial rights and some of the problems that they face. My focus there was primarily on the more jurisdictional aspects of states' territorial claims. What do such theories entail with respect to states' property-like claims over the resources on or in their core surface territories? I'm going to quickly summarize the theories again for those who weren't here yesterday or for those with really short memories or for those who slept through this part of the talk. Um, so voluntarist theories, uh, remember, maintain that I don't condemn you for sleeping through it. I sleep through almost every philosophical talk that I go to, so I really do understand. Um, voluntarist theories, remember, maintain that groups of persons that choose to be and are capable of being self-determining political societies possess the right to create and maintain a legitimate independent polity on the territory that the group occupies. For now, I'm going to just focus on the majoritarian version of voluntarism according to which the group's majority is entitled to make such choices for the group. The important thing to notice about voluntarism is that it justifies territorial rights for states by appealing to the moral importance of free choice and self-determination in our political lives. Self-determination, it's argued on this line, requires control over a land on which to be self-determining, and the natural land to assign a group for this purpose is the land the group actually occupies. Functionalist theories, as I said, derive states' rights to territorial control from the fact that controlling a territory is necessary to states' performances of their morally mandatory functions. The moral mandates defended in such theories are usually either Kantian or consequentialist. Kantians take the morally mandatory function of the state to be that of doing justice, that is, making possible determinate enforceable individual rights, or guaranteeing a just distribution of basic goods in the society. Consequentialists take the morally mandatory task of the state to be that of maximizing the good, which is typically understood as happiness or well-being. In both cases, reasonably robust 
territorial rights for states are thought to be required for discharging these functions. And states that are in fact doing what is morally required of them on a particular territory have the right to continue doing that there as opposed to just doing it somewhere or other. So here, states' territorial rights are taken to rest on the moral importance of states administering justice or effectively promoting social welfare. Finally, nationalist theories hold that the groups that possess the right of self-determination have features like a shared history, shared language, shared culture. They are nations in some strong cultural sense. And because nations so understood are typically attached to a particular territory where over their histories the people and the land have shaped one another in culturally important ways, they must be self-determining on that particular territory in order to preserve the value that their national development has created. The territory in question could be a national homeland or might in some other way be specially tied to the group through its history. So, states' territorial rights are, on such nationalist theories, justified by appeal to the importance of preserving the value of nationhood and participation in a nation. Now, it's very hard, for me at least, to see how any of these philosophical approaches to justifying states' territorial rights could be thought sufficiently powerful to defend full resource rights for states or even to defend resource rights that are nearly as extensive as the rights that states actually claim and are granted under international law. Voluntarist theories, for instance, have to be guided in their reasoning about the extent of states' territorial rights, I think, by what is required for respecting the free political choices of groups and by what's necessary to allowing them to function as self-determining polities. But while groups may need some resources, in order to maintain a level of societal wealth sufficient to be self-determining, and while they may need to control access to resources in certain ways in order to be self-determining, it's extremely difficult to see how respecting groups' political choices and rights of self-determination could justify anything like group ownership of all natural resources on or in the particular territory the group happens to occupy. Having the right to be a legitimate self-determining polity, as far as I can see, entires neither, entails neither that control over any particular set of resources is essential to self-determination, nor that there are no other regarding restrictions on how that polity may act with respect to resources. Similarly, I think functionalist theories are more or less in the same boat. They can defend states' legitimate claims over natural resources, I think, only to the extent that those resources are necessary to the state's performance of its morally mandated functions. And while that will again yield some claims to some resources, claims to maintain a certain level of societal wealth, claims against others' use of local resources that that disrupt local life or that threaten societal defense, those rationales again seem very unlikely to justify states' claimed rights over any of the local resources that aren't relatively central to the lives of the state's members or the security of their states. Doing justice does not, on any plausible rendering of the idea, require a right to maximize societal wealth or even a right to control some particular set of resources, like the ones that are right there. And even a consequentialist version of the functionalist argument, which was defended somewhat yesterday in the question session, even a 
uh, sorry, even a consequentialist version of the functionalist argument would not appear to legitimate anything like the very extensive resource rights to what actual states like claim to. I mean, the simple fact of massive and dire need in the world appears to dictate that the best outcomes will almost always require considerable redistribution of the wealth derivable from natural resources. While there are obviously some efficiencies that dictate local control over local resources, I mean, derived from transaction costs and possible disruption of local economies and the like, uh, those considerations seem plainly insufficient to very regularly outweigh the desperate need for a broader allocation of the value of natural resources. So strong exclusive rights for states to all of their local resources seem very unlikely to fall out of either the voluntarist or the functionalist theory of states' territorial rights. What about nationalist approaches? There's one basic aspect of many nationalist accounts that might initially seem to be more promising with regard to justifying states' resource rights. Nations very often engage in collective harvesting and developing and protecting or actively stewarding natural resources in their homelands, and such activities may seem to be important to their national histories and identities, the value of which, remember, is what nationalists are saying grounds rights of territorial control. Similarly, nationalists argue that nations have rights to those features of their home territories that are in other ways, for instance, in religious or symbolic ways, significant to their nation's identities. But while those arguments might appear to point in a promising direction, surely they can't do all of the justificatory work that's required here either. The vast majority of natural resources in the world do not appear to have religious or symbolic value for the nations within whose territories they happen to be located or to have played any central role in the formation of national national identities. And even if, say, uh, some OPEC nation's identity were tightly tied to its control over and harvesting of large local oil reserves, it seems extremely unlikely that that entity would be much threatened if it were required to share with other nations some of the proceeds from its happy resource endowment. Further, while nations may often identify with or endow with cultural or religious significance certain resource-rich geographical features of their home territories, nationalists are fond of pointing to examples like the importance of the Black Hills to the Lakota Sioux, right? They're the sacred ground, and they're full of gold. They're full of whatever they're full of. I've forgotten. I think they were thought to be full of gold at one time. Um, nations seem far less likely to have this kinds of, kind of relationship with parts of their state's claimed territories on which few of their people reside or which they seldom visit and resources beneath the state's surface territory or that are as yet undiscovered seem almost never to be claimable by appeal to these kinds of nationalist justifications. There's another kind of nationalist approach that's been used that one might think would work a little better. Even if, national, even if nations don't have special attachments to the natural resources themselves, we might say, uh, they may well have attachments to things or to ways of life that would be damaged or disrupted in harvesting or using and selling those resources. Right? If some particular part of the national homeland, say, or all of the homeland for that matter, were regarded to be sacred in some way, and then harvesting resources from the land might well be regarded as defiling what is sacred, 
or if the national lifestyle would be forced to change in some dramatic way, um, were available resources harvested, used, or sold, there might appear to be reasonable nationalist objections to those kinds of resource-related activities. But the conclusion we would reach, I think, from taking seriously those kinds of considerations would surely be not so much a national property-like right over the relevant resources, but rather simply a national right to exclusive control over how or if the resources are harvested. And that falls far short of the kinds of property-like rights and claims to the things themselves over natural resources on which contemporary states insist. So, all of the standard justifications for states' territorial rights look to me startlingly inadequate when they, we attempt to stretch them to cover the property-like claims over local natural resources made by the world's various states. It might, I suppose, seem that focusing on sort of systematic philosophical approaches of this sort to states' territorial rights has caused me to disregard more obvious routes to justifying modern states' claimed resource rights. For instance, I suppose one could argue that it is sufficient for moral justification that international treaties and conventions have granted states legal rights to the resources they claim, at least when that fact is combined with another fact, namely that a system of international law that permits such granting of rights to states is a morally defensible system. But I believe that whether or not the current system of international law can be regarded as a morally defensible system is precisely the point at issue. The forces at work in the creation of international arrangements regarding resources have certainly not been fair to all who are affected by them. Many treaties and conventions have not been approved by all nations, or they've been approved only under pressure, or they've been approved for personal profit by corrupt national leaders. And they certainly could not be regarded as obviously in the interest of all nations, especially given the vast differences in national endowments of various kinds of resources. It seems clear to me, at least, that the international law governing state control over resources has been disproportionately influenced by wealthy nations, along with those favorably endowed with natural resources or favorably situated to exploit the endowments of others. Societies do, of course, quite naturally desire to maximally profit from those natural resources with respect to whose harvesting and use they turn out or might turn out to be especially well-placed. Perhaps it initially seems, especially to those of us who live in affluent states, that legitimate states are simply entitled to reserve for themselves any such resources and to use them in whatever ways are consistent at least with not actively harming other persons or groups. That view, I think, brings us perilously close to embracing an outdated and unpersuasive Westphalian model of international moral relations. And it comes very close to abandoning altogether the idea that moral constraints ought to govern at all our uses of the earth and its limited resources. Even if we successfully resist those kinds of evil temptations, though, we ought to keep clearly in mind the plain limits of those perhaps natural first thoughts about states' entitlements. The claims states make are not just claims to property and those resources that they succeed in finding and harvesting first. The claims are not merely claims of the familiar first come, first served sort, which you might find persuasive. States' claims are to property and resources that are simply located in a particular geographical domain 
regardless of whether or not they have been discovered or harvested by the state at all, let alone first. And my arguments in this talk have all pointed toward the conclusion that there's simply no moral good, good moral reason that can be given to justify the full range of such claims. So, my own view of the matter is that rather, give, rather than giving up the quest for a systematic philosophical account of states' territorial rights, we ought to give up instead our inclination to think that a successful philosophical account should vindicate the actu actual territorial claims made by existing decent or reasonably just states. And once we give up on the aspiration to justify something like the status quo of territorial claims made by decent states, we may once again find ourselves pushed away from the philosophical views I've just been considering and toward the older individualist Lockean version of voluntarism that I support and that I tried briefly to sell you yesterday. For just as that theory tells a plausible story about the source and extent of states' jurisdictional rights over territories, I think it also tells a plausible story about states' property-like rights over natural resources. The Lockean account, remember, identifies the state's territory with the land that's lived on and worked on by the state's willing subjects and states' legitimate resource rights will thus be restricted to appropriate control over resources that are in some direct way implicated in those subjects' lives. Lockean voluntarists, for instance, will count those resources that have been harvested, developed, or actively stewarded by states' members, either individually or collectively, as things over which that state has rights of regulation and control just as the state will have the right to limit access to resources that cannot be harvested without disrupting its state's, its subject's legitimate projects. But many of the resource rights claimed by modern states look deeply suspicious from this Lockean perspective. And I think the Lockean approach, by asking us to think of states' property-like claims in roughly the same way that we think of individuals' property claims, points us in the right direction here. After all, in defining states' territorial rights, international law has really done little more than follow the development of society's thoughts about the content and limits of individual land ownership. And states' property-like claims are strongest, the Lockean view argues, where they are claims to govern the property-creating activities of their own willing subjects. And states' claims are weakest, where they are claims over things that are not used or actively pursued in their subjects' lives, such as states' claims to resources in remote wilderness areas or to resources on or beneath the ocean floor. As for the center of the earth, where we began, we should ask from this Lockean perspective, what is it really reasonable to suppose that an individual landowner is entitled to claim in the way of subsurface rights? What do you think? Um, the answer, I think, is that while I should be able to dig a cellar for my home or a well for my water supply without running into the shaft of your silver mine, there's simply no good reason that can be drawn from the point of individuals having property that I should be able to reserve for myself anything that I might find beneath my <coughs> land if I were to dig a mile's deep hole in it especially where I have no reason to believe there's anything worth digging for. Individual landowners are, I think, entitled to what they actively, productively use, to that for which they have reasonable, realistic expectations of future use, 
and to what they responsibly steward. Let it be the same for modern states and their property-like claims over resources, leaving Jules Verne's subterranean adventurers free of worries about violating states' rights to the interior of the earth. Even if we reject cosmopolitan arguments from the moral arbitrariness of states' natural resource endowments, and even if we reject left libertarian concerns about entitlements to equal shares of the earth, there are still strong reasons of this sort to be deeply skeptical about modern states' claims over many of the resources that lie on, around, and far beneath their acknowledged territories. Thanks. Thank you. We have about 30 minutes for questions, and I'll try to give priority to those who didn't get to ask their question yesterday. I hope I succeed at that. So we start over here. Yeah, it, it could, I suppose. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, sort of banking much on your accepting that, that uh, sort of cosmopolitan argument. But suppose you did accept it. Um, probably the only kinds of resources with which we'd have the kind of close relationships uh, that might justify claims to the, over those resources on that line of argument, right, in the same way that we might think that we're entitled to what we reap from our intelligence or our strength, say, even if they were arbitrarily distributed. Uh, probably the things that you'd end up thinking people have claims over or that nations have claims over are the things that are centrally implicated in the ordinary economic activities of their citizens rather than claims to things like the resources beneath the ocean floor or far beneath the earth and so on. So it might have roughly the same payout as the position that I ended up advocating. So I think probably you could grant something to opponents of that Rawlsian-style argument, including Rawls himself, of course. He wasn't a fan of extending the arbitrariness argument to the international sphere. So you might grant that, I think, and still end up with the same kind of skepticism about states' claims to resources that I was expressing. Look.
Yeah, and that, that is a consequence of the Lockean position, that first appropriation is given a certain kind of priority. I mean, if the, if the Lockean proviso on takings and holdings is honored in some serious way, at least some of those kinds of issues are resolvable in a Lockean theory, don't you think? So suppose we understand the Lockean proviso um, as requiring that people take no more than their fair share of resources that are in common, as it were. And suppose we understand that the idea of a fair share is adjustable across time, right? So that what constitutes a fair share may shrink as the available resources shrink and as the number of people taking them increases. And then it seems to me that you have brought up an example about which I know so little uh, as to, I think I know nothing. I, th I think I literally know nothing about that particular example of the, that's the Swedes and the Estonians, is that what you're saying? Ah. Yeah, well, that's okay. Um, so my guess, my guess is that if we take seriously, I mean, if we have a really serious Lockean proviso, not some miserable sham like Nozick's version of the Lockean proviso, but a real version that looks more like Locke, uh, it seems to me that um, it may be that the Estonians' claims are going to be defensible in certain measures right, in light of what constitutes a fair share of, uh, of the existing resources of that sort. You're probably still going to be unhappy with the sort of appeal to historical entitlements. And it's certainly true that the Swedes are going to be entitled to all the fish that they took before the Estonians got around to taking any fish. Right? They took the fish, they ate them, and as long as they left enough and as good in common for others, then their appropriations are unobjectionable on the Lockean model. Um, but I take it the Estonians' claim would be that they're not so much that, is, it, is the claim that they're entitled to take more than a fair share, that the Swedes ought to keep their boats in the port and let the Estonians take everything that's left because the Swedes have already appropriated more than their share, or is the argument not conducted in that way? This is one of the disadvantages of being a philosopher. You don't know any actual facts, and so you can't discuss cases like this. That, that complaint, as you've presented the complaint, it sounds like a complaint that would be defensible in Lockean terms. As long as you have the enough in a good condition, right. you know, the, the 
mind. Yeah. And it would be... It's just from the initial acquisition. Right. But it, it would be odd if you didn't. I mean, you know, to take a Nozick-style example, right? Here's my island, my desert island. I mean, he was always Robinson Crusoe on a desert island for Nozick, right? So here's my island with two Robinson Crusoes on it, and initially they each take half the island, which is perfectly okay, and they develop it according to their particular whims, and then a third person gets washed up on the beach, and this is the only place there is, right? And it seems to me that the appropriate response to that situation is that what constitutes a fair share of the island then shrinks, right? So that the people, so that what used to be a fair share of the island is no longer, and it seems to me this is an appropriate response as well to the condition with exhausted resources and increasing populations that one, the target for the Lockheed Improviso has to be adjusted in that way. So I'd, I'd like a Lockheed Improviso that had that more sort of plausible form, at least what I regard as a more plausible form, and I think I can probably get at some of the things that rightly worry you about that case, probably using such a proviso. Sarah? At least some of the, at least a lot of the resources, yeah. Can't account for it. But neither can mine. Is that the objection? I think that's exactly right. I, you said nothing there with which I disagree. The only, the only thing that I might add is that the rival theories take themselves to be vindicating the claims of decent or reasonably just states in the world. And if they had more modest ambitions, then they wouldn't be criticizable in precisely the terms that I just criticized them. The criticism would be the criticism that I mounted yesterday. And you, you may not find that plausible either, but that's where, the, that's where the philosophical work would have to be done rather than the stuff I talked about today. So let me bang on a few more seconds about the startling inadequate consequences of motion. My real goal is asking about ideal theories of Lockheed's voice and whether there's a consequence of Good. So the current system of control of resources is just as you described. States have almost full control over all the resources. Let's just say that that's unjust by your standards. Still, it does have something going on. I mean, it does around the market which actually does a really good job of distributing all these resources throughout the world. 
So, here's some facts. The world uses a thousand barrels of oil every second. 42,000 gallons every second. Everything you see right here, including people, is transported here by oil. You are here. All the food, everything you can see, it's all oil. Lights are on because the Norwegians are pumping us gas. I'm, I'm going back home because I can't, I can't stand the indignity of it. Yeah, go ahead. So it's a very complicated market that this system of control has generated. Right. And it's not only good for us rich people, we can fly all around the world, and we can have these great conferences, <laughs> you, but here's some more facts about the current system that's generated by this system of national control of the resources, not only by far the largest population, but longest average lifespan of humans we've ever seen, lowest maternal mortality rate, lowest child malnutrition rate, and as far as we can tell, and I can go on in that thing, as far as we can tell, that statistic we have. We cut dollar-day poverty in half in 18 years. The largest aggregate increase in human material well-being by far in history. So the system may be bad for various reasons about inequality and social justice, but when it comes to the consequences, it's just the end of our life. I mean, material that's marketed, we create this real good. There's lots of problems. Climate change is a big problem. So the consequences will say, okay, let's get the resources that get us all the good things and then get us out of all the bad things and climate change. If that's not where you want to do the debate about which institutions then you're going to have to say, okay, this set is intrinsically unjust. I have an ideal theory, which is going to give us a just distribution of control of resources. That's going to generate a market. We don't know if it's going to be a great market or a terrible market, but there's going to be some market generated by your system of control. And what I really want to know is, even in your ideal theory, how much do you have consequences constraint on the market that your system so are you willing to say, for example, my Lockean system control of the resources may indeed generate a market where average lifespan is five years less, but I'm willing to accept that. My market may indeed generate 10% more infant mortality or malnutrition. Or in fact, my system of property control might throw those 750 million people who just got out of dollar-a-day poverty back in dollar-a-day but I'm willing to accept that for the sake of justice. Is that how you see it in your theory that it has to say what kinds of bad consequences in those terms you're willing to accept? Probably. Uh, probably, I think, an ideal theory does have to say something about that. Uh, and I don't have a clear view of how bad the consequences have to be for me to be willing to eat them. Uh, but. I'm, just, I'm certainly willing to eat some in the name of justice. That is, some, some losses in overall utility, some losses uh, of the sort that you just described. I'm, I'm not positive what, uh, what a perfect non-ideal path to the Lockean ideal would look like. I mean, I, I concede that um, I either sort of lack the cleverness or lack the factual knowledge to be able to sort of lay out a sort of step-by-step -step process that I think would work as a non-ideal process. Uh, and it might very well be um, that something vaguely resembling, I mean, in the same way that I talked about this yesterday, that it might be some, like that something vaguely resembling 
the current system of uh, territorial jurisdiction among states would have to be part of that process uh, in achieving, in ultimately achieving the Lockean ideal. And it may well be that something like the market structure with regard to resources that you're describing would have to play a role um, in the, the steps that would constitute efficient and fair movement towards the Lockean ideal. It does seem to me that the one thing the consequentialist can't deny about the present system is the fact of massive poverty in the world. And I know you described all of the improvements in terms of overall poverty in the world, but there's still a lot of it, a lot of people in desperate poverty and a lot of wealth flowing from the development and harvesting of natural resources that could be channeled in those directions under an, under appropriate international control. And I'm, I'm a little less, you know, while I'm scared of the UN too, I'm a little less scared of it, I think, maybe than you are, of the idea of an international agency having something to do with the redistribution of, uh, of the profits from resources. And I am. Yes, that doesn't make that doesn't make me sound very good. I, I acknowledge, uh, but yes, I'm, I I don't know I don't know what the answer to what price justice, uh, nor does anybody else that I know of. But uh, it would not surprise me if the answer were some price justice, and it might be a price in precisely the terms that you've described. And there, you know, there someone like me just has to bite the bullet and say yes. It's not all about the, the overall outcome. And you know, I don't know what to say beyond that, as I say. I, maybe I'll get cleverer in, the, in my approaching old age and uh, come up with a solution to these problems, but I doubt it. Do you, want, do you want me to say a bit more about what my theory has to say about this or about what other people's theories have to say about this? Because um, the kinds of border controls with which I'm sympathetic are sort of the kinds of border controls that I was trying to describe, namely the kinds of border controls that individual landowners are entitled to exercise over their individual, if we take their claims to be defensible over their individual holdings. I think that associations of willing subjects are entitled to exercise certain kinds of border control if what their nation consists in is a collection of uh, lands to which those individuals are actually morally entitled according to the Lockean account. I think it's permissible to exclude people. Right? And that's not the, you know, that's not a simple development of the Groshen view. Right? What 
I am sympathetic to the I am sympathetic to Grotius's idea that there's something very fishy about states' claims to have more than merely jurisdictional authority over territorial waters, say, right? that the seas have to be free in some fuller sense than a state that made property-like claims to the sea would be asserting. Um, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to that aspect of Grotius's position, but I'm not sympathetic to any conclusions that you might draw about open borders being required by, by such a view. Right. So I think I, I think I'm entitled to uh, sort of develop. Suppose I genuinely owned a piece of land to which I was entitled, rather than the rather shaky kind of ownership that I actually enjoy. But suppose I had something like that, and I developed the land in ways that were you know, that were really fruits of my labor. It seems to me that I would be entitled to exclude others from that, and that collections of persons would be entitled to exclude others from their collected. Uh, the collected products of their labor. Now, there's always the worry about sort of people in desperate need and what obligations we have to them, and I have a view about that, too. Um, so I think it might be, in certain circumstances, necessary to take people in and share with them, right? Well, sort of Nozickian Desert Island with multiple Robinson Crusoes yields that kind of result, and that might be a situation in which we find ourselves in the real world. Um, but you know, my description of this is so idealized that it's a little hard to apply to the real world. I grant that. Does this? I'm not sure if this gets at what's worrying you or not. And I, I deny that aspect of the Groshen story. And I think, frankly, uh, that that aspect of the Groshen story is more politically than philosophically motivated. And I mean, what he was trying to do was justify Dutch trade interests. And I think he sort of, I think he pushed his account, well, that, this is what, this is what Gufendorf thought too, was that this was a politically motivated defense of a particular conception of the free sea. Uh, where I think all that Grotius has in terms of philosophical resources dictates something more modest like the conclusions that I was arguing for. So I think Grotius should have been me, uh, roughly, but got out of control because of his patriotic inclinations. Christian. Yeah, so I agree that the uh, existing theories of territorial rights and nationalism, uh, voluntarism, and functionalism don't give us a satisfactory account of property rights over natural resources, but I'm not persuaded by um, the claim that the Lockean theory does much better, I mean, even in terms of giving us a, a new revisionary um, account of, of property rights over some resources, and, and here is why. It seems to me that um, what you presented as the Lockean theory um, really is the combination of two rather logically distinct uh, components. One is a Lockean uh, account of um, uh, what the criteria for forming a political community is, namely voluntary individual consent. And then the other component is a Lockean 
mixing your labor or implication in your life theory of, of property. And although Locke himself endorsed both of these, various both of these, it's not theologically speaking that one necessarily needs to combine them. And um, so I don't see that the Lockean criterion for the composition of a political community necessarily commits us to the Lockean account of property. And um, so the more we keep um, our um, conceptualization of the political community separate from the idea of territory, as, as we should do, territory is really just contingently attached to, to political communities. And structurally, it seems that a theory of um, the political community is, is almost necessarily largely silent on the issue of property So what would you say in response to that? I think I agree with all of that. I feel like I should disagree with it um, from the way that you advance the question, but I think I agree with all of that. Uh, that is, I do think they are conceptually distinct. So my defense of the two views together is uh, a defense of them being individually more persuasive than the rival accounts. Um, and I think it yields an account of state territoriality, which is uh, intuitively plausible. So. Uh, I think I, I think I agree with that view, and what I'd want to do is defend my Lockean theory of property separately from my Lockean theory of uh, of political obligation and authority, and then argue that together they form a they form a compelling whole. I think that's how Locke himself would have to argue for them, right? So strictly speaking, then you defended uh, a somewhat different Lockean theory yesterday from today, and it's just that you also hold the view that they go together. Yeah. I think I think that's that's right. Um, I mean, my my view yesterday, the view that I defended yesterday, was primarily a view about jurisdictional authority over persons uh, and the sort of territorial implications that arguments about that might be taken to have. But yeah, I mean, this is a no. I grant that this is a different view than the one I was defending. Well, not a different view, but a different aspect of what I hope makes one coherent. First comment I want to make is just really late as a garden, so it was really about your response to him um, in the tension between the, the consequentialist challenge and the investments you came to. It didn't seem here that you've got quite as much of a problem there simply because from the other perspective that the, the question you always ask is well, you know, how much injustice have you prepared you know, to get utility. Right. Um, and this is not obvious that you know, either of you is in, in a superior position. Um, so I, I don't think the consequences challenge is quite as, uh, as serious. Shall I, shall I run down the hall and bring Leif back? I see you. I will. Thousands of systems. 
So rather than applying it to, to give a full theory of the justification of the child, could you just say, is it your view that with all of these different uh, kinds of property regimes, there is a single underlying <coughs> um, appearance, a single underlying <coughs> idea that explains the legitimacy or illegitimacy of all of these kinds of property? And given that, for example, one aspect of it, they all have um, different um, theories of inheritance. And by other people, they describe inheritance in the same way. Some they would go back to the real part, some would go back to the real part. So, what's the view about the real part? Well, um, I, th I think what worries me, look, I mean, one could, one could imagine doing the Lockean story with something like a conventionalist account of property rather than a kind of natural rights view of the sort that I, in fact, defend. So we get sort of different conceptions of property in different societies on the strength of different kinds of con useful conventions having evolved within those societies. Same. So you could do the project that way. What worries me, I confess, about this, and maybe this is just a naive worry on my part, is how one deals with how one deals with conflicts between property owners in different societies and territorial conflicts between. Uh, societies with different standards of property, when there is no, as it, when there is no, as it were, decisive conception of who owns what, and I guess what I find attractive about the Lockean view, not just saying you know, some of these views are right and some of them are, and look, a lot of systems of property do reflect sort of the same kinds of intuitions about property acquisition. For instance, I mean most of the most of the conceptions of property that I'm familiar with that have evolved in the in the world have had some feature that looks like uh, first possessor or first laborer features uh, that ground special rights for people who come first, say. Um, uh, the thing I find attractive about having one theory that can adjudicate these disputes is just that there's some way to adjudicate those disputes then. Whereas, I, I mean, I find it, I find it very difficult to imagine how one would say what had gone wrong when, say, Native, I mean, the case I always have in mind is Native American peoples or uh, uh, Aboriginal peoples elsewhere. When they're dispossessed of their lands, what does one say? I mean, they had a completely different conception of land ownership than the people who displaced them. Does one say that one was right and the other was wrong? And I'm inclined to say that we should say that one was right and the other was wrong, that the Europeans were foisting on the Native Americans and a false theory of property that suggested that they hadn't sort of tilled the land and fenced it in appropriate ways to claim ownership over it, that that's just a bad argument about property. But um, so I guess that's where, my, that's where my worries are, is what one does about adjudicating disputes. And if you add to that that I find the Lockean theory independently compelling, um, then it gives you some indication of, I mean, it's, that's just psychological history more than justification. Um, so, you know, I have, to, I have to rest my case on the arguments themselves for a labor theory of property acquisition. And I'm sort of willing to, willing to argue with people about that. I don't guess I think I have knocked down arguments for my view that should make everybody run for the hills, but I at least have some arguments uh, that I'm willing to trot out. Is this, 
is this sort of, and thank you, by the way, for, for explaining to everybody why life was mistaken uh, in, in his criticism of my view. But have I gotten anywhere near the um, answer? I think I've got an understanding of where this is going. I guess I'm, I can't persuade if you have But how would how would you handle the adjudication of conflicts between? Well, it seems to me that when you get two different kinds of uh, claims based on different understandings, what you do is you try to come to some agreement. You try to negotiate uh, on the basis of different understandings, and what may emerge as a consequence is either you know, you share understanding of what problem is, or you may have the equivalent of a um, kind of jurisdictional So it's a sort of social agreement theory all the way down, as it were. So you have conventions and meta conventions, and this will have the whole structure all the way. In which case, you wouldn't need a single theory. But it does still have certain awkward consequences where one system is foisted on the holders of another system, say. We have no more time for the remaining questions, but we do have enough time to thank you very much for two fascinating lectures.